Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It's Beamaz and Beamer. News Radio 930 WBEN. All right, welcome in to Beamaz and Beamer here on WBEN. Uh, here with on a Thursday morning. Thanks for so hanging I'd... out with us once again and, you know, hoping to have another good time. Yeah. Although, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not I'm not having a good time, Joe, because I'm uh, I'm too busy thinking about you know, what is coming down the line. And I I don't like to live with a, a sense of dread about something in the future, but I I can't help myself. Okay. Especially with what we heard yesterday. Uh, Governor Kathy Hochul was speaking yesterday, and she was asked about vaccination mandates for school-aged kids. And here was the response. It was a quick response. Uh, You might not think it sounds like much, but here's what she said. First, with respect to children, my default position is to trust the parents to do the right thing. As soon as that's available, we'll be monitoring after a few months uh, how effective it has been to ask parents to do something that they certainly did for their children before they even entered kindergarten, that they made sure that they were vaccinated against any disease that could harm them. And I believe that there'll be a strong sentiment of people doing that voluntarily. I am certainly willing to look at this. I know the state of California has said they will mandate that. Maybe it's Los Angeles, uh, but for not till next fall. So. I'm, I want to go by the data, the numbers, and see how effective the approach is just to encourage people and have many pediatricians make it part of a child's checkup or part of their basic routine series of getting their vaccinations. I mean, that's what should be happening. So I'll, I will monitor that, but willing to take a step if we see numbers that we're not satisfied with. So you can, you know, it's a response like that that leads me to say that I can see it coming, right? It's much like the way New York City has operated, where it's not really a choice um, for a lot of people. It's presented as a choice for a while until you get down the line several months later, a mandate is enforced. And where now I'm having real concern is in that area where she was asked. And you know me, Joe. I, I try not to be concerned with a lot of things. Right. right? Unless something uh, is directly impacting me or I have a direct connection with it or it's something that you know is I, I can personally control, I, I really try to brush things off you know, my back. But I do have a concern with this. It's been brewing in the background, and we're we're nearing this point, right? The discussion is already happening. The questions are being asked, and we're nearing a point where a decision is going to be made, and it's going to have a major impact on whether or not we're going to require vaccination for kids in school. And 
there's this idea that we're going to mandate it for everybody age kindergarten and up in the near future. You heard Kathy Hochul there mention next year, but even uh, next school year. That is in the near future when you're talking about something. You're talking about taking kids who decline vaccination, a decision that, by the way, is more likely than not, not even going to be their own decision. It's a decision made by their parents. And the idea of preventing them from getting an in-person education, it's a penalty that doesn't seem to fit the severity of the decision, no matter which way you go. And all this is coming at a time when more and more people are becoming aware of the overwhelming age skew of COVID. And to help us kind of talk through it a little bit, we bring on uh, one of our favorite guests, Dr. Amish Adalja with Johns Hopkins University, who has been kind of talking us through a lot of this pandemic and to sort through some of these issues when it comes to the vaccine and elementary-aged children that is coming very soon. Dr. Adalsha, thanks so much for being with us once again. Always enjoy having you on as a guest. Uh, This conversation that's brewing in the background in some areas of the country, it's already hitting you you right in the face right there in uh, California and Los Angeles specifically. How are you viewing this conversation of vaccines and kids? And then especially when you get to the part about mandating it for going to school. It's important to remember that schools mandate many different vaccines for entry, including ones that are not communicable, for example, tetanus, or ones that have a low low risk of severe disease in the school, for example, certain states mandate the human papillomavirus vaccine, Gardasil. So I think you have to look at this in in that view, that there are many vaccines that schools schools uh, require. And I think that schools have a right to set whatever entry requirements they want to do. It just gets very muddled because government controls most of the schools in the United States, other than the private schools, which they do exert influence on. I think that the, the vaccine is going to be something that I suspect will be shown to be safe and effective in the 5 to 11 group, just as it has been in the 12, the 12 group. And school districts are going to probably not have a one-size-fits-all type of approach to this. And when they think about if they want to add COVID-19 vaccines to the list of required vaccines that, that are already on the books, it's probably going to be something based on what's the level of vaccination in the community, what's the level of spread in the community, how disruptive has COVID-19 been. And I think that that's where school districts need to be flexible and, and make this decision based on, on local characteristics of what's going on there. It's obviously going to create a lot of outrage on both sides. There's going to be people agitating for the mandate uh, uh, as, a entry, as a school entry requirement and those arguing against it. I don't think there's any easy answers, but I think it's important to just remember that there are many diseases, things like chickenpox that have been added to that list that weren't there initially and people think of generally as a, as a mild disease because schools don't want to be disrupted by it. And I think that's how I, how I view it. Dr. Dalja, looking at um, you know the vaccination rate throughout the country and what we know about COVID with, uh, with children, what do you think the importance of children getting the vaccine is? 
to their individual lives, I think COVID doesn't represent, you know, an existential threat. Most children are going to be spared from severe consequences of disease or, or hospitalization, although there are some high-risk children. But what we do know is that if you can avoid getting COVID, it's much better to avoid getting COVID than to not get it, even if it's a mild case, because you're going to be isolated for 10 days. You have to worry about transmission. There's going to be contact tracing. And if that can be avoided by a, a simple vaccine that's safe and effective, I think that's the way to go about it, uh, even if you're not going to be at risk for severe disease. And in that sense, I think that this gives children their lives back in a way, because many school districts have policies that if you're vaccinated, you don't have to necessarily uh, quarantine if you've been exposed, or they have you know, testing to remain in school type of policies for the vaccinated. All of that makes it much easier for a child to resume their normal activities because of the societal restrictions and issues that we have regarding COVID. And, and that may be something that is part of the public health emergency and eventually will fade away as people get more acclimatized to COVID being a, a respiratory virus that's not going anywhere. But for right now, if you're a vaccinated child, you have a lot of privileges in, in schools that, than non-vaccinated children do. And, and that gives you a way to kind of navigate this, this new world. And, and I think that's another factor that parents have to think about because it's not as if this vaccine poses a major danger to them, but it's the fact in the United States is that we still have high levels of transmission with tens of thousands of cases occurring with, with hospitals that are still um, under stress in some parts of the country. So this public health emergency is going to last for, for some time. And one way to minimize the impact of that on, on your life in terms of disruption is to be vaccinated. And I think that the, the data that you'll see on the vaccine, specifically in the 12 to 17 year olds, that, that looks very good that those individuals have been getting vaccinated for some time now. And I think the five to 11 group looks good too. And I think many parents are gonna take advantage of that just because, not because they may be feared of, fearful of COVID putting their child in the hospital, but maybe because they want their child to be able to kind of regain their childhood. And that's a little bit difficult to do in the midst of a public health emergency and a pandemic with so many public health mitigation measures. You know, I think that's where part of the problem might be, right? Where uh, you mentioned some of the things like, say, a quarantine rule and how it's different for uh, kids who may be vaccinated versus unvaccinated while in school. And you know, I think a lot of times that gets talked about as if it's like some naturally occurring thing and not somebody who made that rule, right? Where, you know, it's somewhere down the line, somebody decided that that was going to be the rule that, okay, you have to be vaccinated if you want to continue school uninterrupted. And I I keep coming back to this idea that there really, you know, you look around the world, there's not exactly the scientific consensus about vaccinating children as there is about adults. Um, you know, it's the older you get, the more obvious um, it, it, the decision really becomes. And we can kind of look at health agencies around the world. But in the political realm, and we heard our governor speaking there, the people who have the authority to make those types of rules or a vaccination mandate or something like that, it seems like there is no debate and there's no looking at varying points of view. It's only you know, it's one side or the other, right? There's the belief that everyone must be vaccinated or that there must be no mandates whatsoever and there's no, you know, looking at anything that might disagree with it. And when the two things are at odds, what you're kind of reading from scientific agencies around the world and seeing in the numbers and what we're hearing from politicians, I, I think that's where, 
you start to get into a real sense of mistrust that has the opportunity to grow more so than what we're seeing right now. It, it, it's a very fraught, fraught field right now, and I think we've seen a lot of politics being injected into all of these vaccine decisions from, from the very start. And when you look at other countries, yes, there is a debate on the value of vaccinating children in terms of the trajectory of the pandemic, because they're not going to necessarily have severe disease. They're not going to inundate hospitals. And countries that have been more flexible or, or been less stressful, stressing of vaccinating children often have a much higher adult vaccination rate. So I think that plays a role in places like England, where they're not really emphasizing vaccinating children because the adult vaccination rate is so high that it's not an issue. And the other thing to remember is in many parts of Europe, the priority was to keep schools open uh, during in the pre-vaccine era. So many places in Europe, schools were the last thing to close and the first thing to open. But in the United States, it was schools were the first thing to close and casinos were the first thing to open. So very different priorities and very different risk tolerance levels in Europe and the United States. So it's, I think this is tr- definitely a sociological phenomenon that we have a much lower tolerance in our schools and school districts for cases for disruption than they did in, in Europe. And, and we tended to be much more likely to go to virtual learning than they did in Europe. And I think that was a mistake. I think that there, this, this already kind of conditioned the population to think about pediatric COVID in a certain way versus how it was being treated in other parts of the, uh, other parts of the world. We had teachers unions refusing to teach and, and, vac- and demanding access to the vaccine, but then not wanting it mandated. Um, all of that happened here in the United States, but did not happen in other parts of the country. And I think that's also really driving uh, some of the, the policy decisions being made about pediatric vaccinations, because we, we live in a society, and even though it is people's decisions that are doing it, they become reality for that child who is faced with, I can't go to school now because of this. And, and that's, how, that, that's, that's the context in which pediatric vaccination is being debated. Uh, you know, on the merits of it, I think schools know that COVID-19 in their school is going to be something that creates a five-alarm fire, and they're trying to keep it out. And the, and the vaccine is the best tool to do that. And I think that's what they're being put into this position uh, of because of because of the societal response to COVID, because there there's not been the ability to risk calculate or think about mitigation measures out in schools in a more broad way, or to think think the, think about this in the full context. And I think that's a lot of the decision-making around that is influenced by, by that societal mindset we have about COVID in schools. Is it time then for, I guess, somebody to stand up and maybe say that we we might need to change that mindset as a society to, to put the emphasis on schools first and to, to realize the risk? And looking at the New York Times, the New Yorker both have pieces out in the past couple of weeks comparing the risk of kids we've all seen the images of packed stadiums for football games basketball games hockey now you name it all around the country a lot of these are vaccinated only so it's okay and we have you know vaccinated 50 year olds and you know everybody's on top of each other we're packing in and you know there's a number of high profile pieces coming out recently that show that you know it's it's almost so low the you know serious implications of covid in elementary age kids that it's difficult to quantify except for you couldn't look at it as being less than the risk to even a vaccinated 50 year old who were more than fine telling go and enjoy the next buffalo bills win yet we're too scared to tell a kid go and learn math 
I think this is this is just part of the paradox of the way this pandemic has unfolded. Yes, it is true that the data bears out that a vaccinated older person is more at risk from COVID than an unvaccinated child. But that just doesn't get translated into policy. And the more you say that, the more attacked you get because everything is being viewed through tribes. And, and one, one tribe views pediatric COVID as a very important problem and another tribe does not. So you can't even wade into this without getting a lot of hate mail, regardless of what side you take, because everybody's kind of in their corners. But but it is true that that uh, that children are spared those severe consequences of these. That's been apparent from the very beginning. And when you look at influenza, you look at RSV, especially in that younger age group of less than 12, those are bigger threats to, to children. And, and many school districts don't require the influenza vaccine. I think many of them, I think they actually should, but they don't. So, so I think that there is a kind of a, a jumbling of, of risk calculation that's going, going on here. And I think it, it all comes back to the early days of this pandemic when many public health authorities took an abstinence-only approach where no COVID risk was tolerable rather than teaching the population that they're going to have to learn to live with this, that they're going to have to learn to risk calculate, that this is going to be a virus that still infects us 15 years from now, 25 years from now. And, and if you don't come up with a way to, to teach people how to do what's called harm reduction, do things safer, be vaccinated, do things outside, wear masks, think about where the risk actually is and in which segment of the population, you really stunt their ability to risk calculate. And then you get these types of paradoxical things where, where casinos are open, but schools are closed, even though the risk to the, the average casino person is much higher because they tend to be older than, than children in school. You know, the uh, you brought it up and it's brought up by a lot of people when we're talking about the idea of a vaccine mandate in schools is, OK, look at all the other vaccinations that are mandated. And, you know, it kind of becomes this, um, you know, arguing point about the vaccine where I I think there needs to be a, a little bit of separation that it's almost because of the crazy world we live in, because of everything we've been talking about, it almost has nothing to do with the vaccine itself, right? Um, and how effective it is or the difference that it could make. The point is there's never really been a vaccine that has the controversy and confusion that this one does. And to take it out of that context, I think is a mistake that could lead us to a lot of kids not being in school in person when they could be. I, I don't. Yeah, that's that's not an easy thing to to solve because it is true that the COVID nineteen vaccine is probably the most controversial vaccine in the last you know fifty sixty years. There, there, we saw some of this flare up with with Gardasil, the HPV vaccine, uh, when certain states like Texas tried to, to require it as an entry requirement. Um, but some schools, some schools, some states have done it without controversy, like Virginia, for example. But, but it is definitely the most controversial vaccine. And it's unfortunate because it's probably one of our best vaccines. This is a, a vaccine that's already saved tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives in, in this country. So th that, that's one aspect of it. But I tend to be someone who wants to, to double down and actually defend the vaccine because I think it's being unjustly maligned. And it's unjustly the the subject of all of these ludicrous conspiracy theories that it that that really have no basis in reality, and, and for that reason, you end up you, you find people like me who who really emphasize this vaccine even over other vaccines because you kind of have this protectiveness over it because if you've been taking care of COVID nineteen patients the entire pandemic and seeing what it does, and you've got this great tool and people are willfully shunning it and and turning it into this political issue and 
and then actually not getting vaccinated and then crushing their own community hospitals, it, it really um, it really gets you you know gets your defenses up when people start to attack this vaccine or think about it controversially. But I do think it it is going to be a very difficult probably year or two with how this as this vaccine transitions to a more routine childhood vaccination and that's where it's going this is going to be a routine childhood vaccination that is the aim and and i think that's hopefully going to be something that dampens uh, because you know it, it should be something that you try to avoid and if you can immunize people in childhood they don't have issues ever with covid-19 with maybe a second generation vaccine that's more durable or, or that's going to be the solution to taming this virus and it it won't be surprising to me when it gets added to the routine childhood immunization recommendations, along with polio and MMR and tetanus and diphtheria and pertussis. Speaking of adding that to the uh, routine that children, uh, the vaccines that children have to get before going to school, how often is a child going to have to get a COVID-19 vaccine? Well, I think that's unclear at this point. We still don't really know exactly what the duration is of the immunity. And, and I think we have to, as a society, decide what we want vaccines to do. And to me, it's prevent serious disease, hospitalization and death with these first-generation vaccines. There may be a second-generation vaccine that is more like the measles vaccine. There, there are many vaccines you don't hear about that are in the headlines that are kind of plodding along, trying to, trying to really solve other problems with, with COVID, meaning ha- have more what's called sterilizing immunity or immunity in your nose so you don't even get mild infections. So I don't think that you're going to see this be emphasized as a childhood routine vaccination until we get that type of data out there. But I think it's, it's heading that way. And I think that's that's usually what we do with vaccines is we try to train. If it can be transitioned to the childhood immunization schedule, that's where it moves uh, to, to protect to protect it, to protect everybody and get people protected very early on. That's why we give hepatitis B vaccine at birth. Uh, we don't wait for people to have hepatitis B risk. The first dose is given before you leave the hospital when you're born. You know, you said the, the vaccine, uh, it, it limits the severity of COVID if you get it. Uh, a few weeks ago, Dr. Fauci said that he uh, he rejects the notion that getting a mild case is uh, is acceptable. Uh, and something I'm paraphrasing, obviously, what he said. And then yesterday, uh, there was an infectious disease professor in Australia who said after getting the vaccine, you want to get COVID to better your immunity. Uh, where do you stand on those two statements? So I'm kind of going to straddle both of them. Um, If you have to get COVID, it's much better to get COVID after you've been vaccinated because it's likely to be mild and it will boost your immunity. But I don't think you should want to get COVID. Uh, One of my colleagues who works with me at the hospital text messaged me last night at 3.30 that she got a fever and a cough while she was working and now she feels miserable and it was a breakthrough infection. And now she's off of work for 10 days and there's going to be a contact trace. I mean, nobody wants that. I don't think you should want to get COVID because it's going to disrupt your life. I think you should try to avoid getting COVID. But if you if you are going to get COVID, it's much better to get it once you've been vaccinated because it's not something you might feel bad for a couple of days, but it's not something that's going to have you rushing to the doctor to be seen or or, or having any chance of serious illness. So so it, it is true that I think no one is going to leave this planet without COVID-19. And the goal is to have those infections be mild. But if you can avoid getting it, uh, you should avoid getting it. It's not something you want. You don't want to have a COVID-19 party like those crazy people who have chickenpox parties. Dr. Amish Adalja, always appreciate the time. And uh, we really do thank you for joining us. Uh, Johns Hopkins University and uh, one of our experts to help us navigate the COVID pandemic. Joining us live on BMS and Beamer on WBEM. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It's Beamaz and Beamer. Now Brian Mazarowski and Joe Beamer. News Radio 930 WBEN. Welcome back in to Beamaz and Beamer here on WBEN. Joe, uh, festive today in his Sabres sweatshirt. Hey, w- happy opening day. I forgot to wear mine to match you. I just, uh, the, the level of excitement isn't there. Uh, I was going to say, can you feel it in this building? The level of excitement? <laughs> it's, it's there. You can taste it in the air. Where can you feel it more? In this in this building or downtown tonight? Is it going to be a toss-up or what? I, don't know. I You know, the ratio of people wearing Sabres gear is equal here as it will be <laughs> there, maybe. I don't, you know? I don't know. But you know there might be more Sabre fans at this game than in past years since Montreal Canadian fans for the most part, will not be able to make it down. It's true. It's uh, unfortunate for, uh, really, for the Sabres, too. Uh, if you missed the first segment of our show, we were talking with Dr. Amish Adalja, uh, Johns Hopkins University. Um, uh, you know, a bit about the vaccine in children. We're going through this process now where it's likely, and you heard the White House telling governors earlier this week to be prepared to administer the vaccine to elementary-aged kids. And, you, you know, that is... This is not really about that at all, even. Um, but it's about what comes next. And, you know, you don't even have to go as far as reading the tea leaves. You can just, I mean, you know yeah. it's coming. You can listen to what the governor had to say yesterday. And this idea of a vaccination mandate in schools for COVID-19. And, you know, again, this this almost doesn't have to do with the vaccination itself. It has to do with just taking everything into context before we start to make these decisions and put that out there. In California, they're skipping all that. They're going right to it. They're already doing it in uh, high schools, and they're going to do, right? Uh, They're going to do it in school, in elementary schools, right? You can see it. You can see it. It's going to happen. The point is... And you'll hear this time and time again, and you'll hear this from doctors, that this is just going to be another vaccination that we add to the list of vaccines that are mandated on kids to go to school that everyone complies with, that nobody seems to have a problem with. But the point that I brought up to Dr. Adalja and the point that the politicians and people who are in the line to make these decisions are missing is there's never been a vaccine as controversial as this one. Right. And that is not an uh, indictment on the vaccine. That's not to say that the controversy is correct. That's not to say that attacks on the vaccine are even right. But it is a matter of fact. To take it out of that context, you're setting yourself up for a huge mistake. Hokelson yesterday was one of the tweets, and she wasn't talking about this. 
but I wish she was. I wish she was talking about everything. She said yesterday, <laughs> this is the quote, I think the numbers speak for themselves. She was talking about the vaccine mandate when it comes to healthcare workers, when 3% that, you know, th- this is the focus on the 3% of healthcare workers who are not at their jobs right now because of the vaccination mandate instead of the 97% who are, you know, I mean, it's a vast number. And she said the numbers speak for themselves. Well, I hope that we take that same way of thinking and apply it to an idea of a vaccination mandate in schools, a conversation you know is going to happen because it's already being brought up in news conferences. You have to look at it in this context, right? The latest information provided by the state, 62% of 12 to 15 year olds have had one dose of the vaccine. So that's not even fully vaccinated. That's just one dose of that Pfizer vaccine, 62%. It's been approved for months in that age range. That number is going to be lower when you're talking five to 11 year olds. Yes, It just is. Yep. That's common sense. And that has nothing to do with uh, the vaccine being good or bad being less effective in that age range or anything like that. That's just common sense that people are going to approach younger kids with more hesitancy when it comes to the vaccine because the uh, positives of a vaccine are way harder to see in that age range because they're not severely impacted by COVID, generally speaking, right? Right. So you you have to look at it in this context. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you said this a few months ago, Brian. Uh, the the point of keeping kids out of school, the point of the distancing at school, was mainly now. Obviously, there are high risk individuals, but was mainly so kids did not bring it home to an older population. With that older population now vaccinated, uh, for the most part, I, I think it's very difficult to see the benefits of rushing a vaccine to elementary age children. She says, I think the numbers speak for themselves, and I do too. 62% of 12 to 15-year-olds have one dose of the vaccine. 5 to 11-year-olds, we know that number is going to be lower. And if we're talking about the idea of mandating the vaccine for kids to go into school, then you're looking at the possibility that we may be moving toward telling half of elementary-age kids that they're not welcome in school. And we're doing this without even realizing or shedding light on the fact that asking questions about vaccines for kids or being more cautious about the vaccine for kids than for adults are reasonable approaches due to the numbers that speak for themselves that we've seen over the last year and a half that you heard Dr. Adalja talking right there that for a younger kid Uh, the risk is lower than for a vaccinated 40 or 50-year-old. And we're totally fine with a vaccinated 40 or 50-year-old going into the stadium every single Sunday, going into the arena tonight, going into the arena when there's a concert going on, when there are actually going to be people packed (laughs) into the arena. We're totally fine with that. But we're not fine when it comes for kids. And it is, I guess, looking at the difference. It's it's looking at the risk, I guess, in a different way. Some people are more scared of the vaccine than they are of COVID. Some, you know, personally, if I'm talking about my kid, I'm we're calling the doctor's office for the flu shot because I am 
way more nervous about the flu when it comes to my kid and handing him off to daycare and what's going to happen in the flu season than I am with COVID right. because I I can see that. The numbers are comforting to me as a parent of a young child. And you're just taking everything out of kind. What we've done is we've taken the science away from the mandate almost. We've taken that idea that it's the political realm that is enforcing the mandates, and that's a mistake because the political uh, realm and the politicians and the authorities who are putting these into place are the ones who are more likely to say, all right, this is our stance, this is my popular stance, and by the way, it is a popular stance, the vaccination mandate or just vaccination in general. We see that in the numbers. The numbers speak for themselves. That is the stance that they're going to uh, stay with, and you're not going to alter that when you're talking about 5 to 11-year-olds as opposed to 50 to 70-year-olds. I would say this. I think the vaccine is more popular than that. I'm not sure mandates are as popular as the vaccine, um, especially when it comes to children, because of what we said. We, we don't see uh, children, A, having the long-term effects from COVID, and B, really having more than just cold or, or uh, minor flu-like symptoms with it. And I think that's where it's going to be difficult, Brian, uh, on trying to make this a mandate in schools, in elementary schools, or even in high schools here in New York State. As you said, California, well on their way. Um, But I think looking at data, looking at hospitalizations, looking at death, remember, at the beginning of all this, this was about uh, about flattening the curve of hospitalizations and death. But when that's not the issue with the younger population, convincing parents that they need to rush this vaccine to their children, I think it's going to be very difficult it's to more do. That you and, that, and that's more than just party lines. Joe, you mentioned flattening the curve. It's, I, I mean, it is amazing to me. I mean, the lack of understanding and, and just the lack of awareness of the situation that some people have. The same people who, back in March of 2020, were saying 14 days to that's flatten right. the curve, that has now turned into, in some cases take this medicine or be fired. Right. And you can see that. And again, whether it's right or wrong, to look at that, the same people telling you that message and now this message, and you're still perplexed as to why there's skepticism in those people making decisions. There shouldn't be any, uh, you know, question as to why are people so hesitant? Why is there, you know, this uh, hesitancy toward the vaccine or why don't people like to listen to this doctor or that doctor or this politician or that politician they're right it doesn't matter if they're right or wrong right. it does not matter because we've been taken through this uh you know political and scientific roller coaster where everyone's been spit out on the other end in I like to look at it as in three camps. Uh, a lot of people would say in two camps. You know, we're, you know, the uh, co- people who take COVID seriously and people who don't. That's how most people kind of look at it. I-, I think we're in three camps. We're in those two. And then there's the third camp who looks at each of those and says, well, wait a second. You're both wrong. Right. <laughs> you're, you're both in the wrong about so many things. Yeah, I um I, I look at it like this, you know, you talk about all this, the skepticism, all the questioning around it, Brian, and I've been saying this for a while. I think it's because those who 
those who question the vaccine, those who have, and I'm talking about credible questions about the vaccine, they are usually ignored by those in power or sarcastically answered, and they're not taken seriously. And I think that's a that would be a big step in the right direction if if the, those that are making these laws actually listen to the concerns of those who are hesitant about either getting the vaccine or having their child get the vaccine. I think that would that that would be a step in the right direction. And I'm not saying it's all politicians, but there are some definitely in higher positions of power who have not taken other people's questions on the vaccine as seriously. I just I know and we can uh, actually I think we should play Kathy Ogle's comments again from yesterday. First, with respect to children, my default position is to trust the parents to do the right thing. As soon as that's available, we'll be monitoring after a few months uh, how effective it has been to ask parents to do something that they certainly did for their children before they even entered kindergarten, that they made sure that they were vaccinated against any disease that could harm them. And I believe that there'll be a strong sentiment of people doing that voluntarily. I am certainly willing to look at this. I know the state of California has said they will mandate that, maybe it's Los Angeles, uh, but for not till next fall. So. I'm, I want to go by the data, the numbers, and see how effective the approach is just to encourage people and have many pediatricians make it part of a child's checkup or part of their basic routine series of getting their vaccinations. I mean, that's what should be happening. So I'll, I will monitor that, but willing to take a step if we see numbers that we're not satisfied with. Trust the parents to do the right thing is what she said. Now, I mean, the problem with that is do the right thing in her mind is likely, and we can kind of guess this from what we've seen before, is to take the vaccine, no questions asked. Right. I mean, questions are not tolerated. And, and when we say that, and in the same 30-minute chunk say, I think the numbers speak for themselves, what are the numbers? What are the numbers that we've been looking at for the last year and a half? When Erie County reports fatality numbers and hospitalization numbers, you, you know how they do it, but I, I'll, I'll paint the picture in everyone's mind once again. Uh, they do it by age group a lot of times. And what do you see when they report it by age group? We well, see 80 plus, we see 70 to 79, we see 60 to 69, 50 to 59. And, and then we see under 40. <laughs> yeah. Everybody under 40. And, and it's consistently the, the lowest group, uh, whether hospitalization or fatality or anything like that. But it's just everybody lumped in under 40. These are the numbers we've been seeing. So when there are questions and concerns about a mandate for vaccination, I, you can't force the issue when the payoff is likely not going to be there. And the consequence is so dire and it's so out of proportion with the benefit, I, I think, if you're looking at this data, the consequence of taking kids out of school indefinitely is far too severe for uh, compared to the consequence of not getting that vaccination. Yes. If I'm looking at this data, if I'm yes. looking at the numbers, the consequence of you want to take it a step further. You mentioned, you know, making a part of your annual, um, your routine vaccinations. Anyone who has a kid knows about it. You go to the doctors. Am I getting a shot today? Yes, no. You know, you, oh. you tell me what's up. You're the smart one. Um, the consequence of, 
Well, if you're in a pediatrician office and somebody refuses that vaccine, this vaccine in particular, are, are, and we're dropping that patient, and now what, a child doesn't have health care in the same way that they used to? The consequences to this decision, I, the cost-benefit analysis that we talk about so many times, I think the scale really does tip. Again, this isn't talking about the decision to vaccinate. This is talking about the decision to mandate yeah. a vaccine. Right. When it's that discussion that you're having, I I really, looking at everything right now, the scales are tipping in one direction that the mandate it doesn't seem like the plausible option. No, and I also think it's um, Kathy Hochul saying, do what's best for your children. Well, I think parents know their children better than Kathy Hochul does. So maybe that should just be the statement. Hey, do what's best for your child. And a parent knows their child's health. I'm sure all parents will go and talk to the child's doctor and see what the doctor's opinion is. Uh, but for Kathy Hochul to tell you how to parent when it comes to, for any politician to tell you how to parent when it comes to your child, uh, I think is a little above what they're supposed to do. And then you're going to have people like this. Uh, Kyrie Irving, he's been the yes. name in the in the news so far. And he's not going to play basketball. This year. one of the big stars in the NBA. Not going to play basketball because he plays for the Brooklyn Nets. And in New York City, they have the rule, if you want to be inside the building, you have to be vaccinated. He's not vaccinated. He is, uh, this is from a piece in The Athletic. He's upset because of the way he's being portrayed as anti-vax or anti-vaccine. Um, this is uh, reading from that piece in The Athletic. Multiple sources with direct knowledge of Irving's decision telling The Athletic Irving is not anti-vaccine. His stance is he's upset that people are losing their jobs due to vaccine mandates. Yep. It's a stance Irving has explained to close teammates. To him, it's about a grander fight than the one on the court. Irving challenging a perceived control of society and people's livelihood according to sources with knowledge of Irving's mindset. It's a decision he believes he is capable to make given his current life dynamics, a.k.a. he's rich. He doesn't really need to play. You talk about all the money he's losing. Talk about the money he's already made. He says he is not anti-science, anti-vax. And, you know, reading between the lines of this, it's almost as if he would have gotten the vaccine if it wasn't for the mandate. All the mandates, yeah. And we've talked about that mindset before. That's another thing you're going to be struggling with. The most important thing for kids, get them back in school. Get them on that routine. Get them back where they need to be to try and live a normal life like we all kind of assumed would be happening by now. It isn't quite there. And if we're going to add another barrier to that, I... That's what I'm nervous about, Joe. That is like the fear in the back of my mind where, you know, as I say so many times, I try not to pay attention to it. I try not to uh, let anything get to me unless it has a direct impact. That is the one that I, I just feel like we are pushing ourselves toward this big mess of a situation, and, and it's coming sooner and sooner every day. And as you said, Brian, and I'll leave with this, uh, a mandate can have the opposite effect. No one wants to be felt like they're forced into doing anything. And who knows if these numbers, they could have, they, I could be wrong here, but who knows? Maybe the numbers would be higher without mandates. Maybe they'd be lower. Uh, but for a lot of those people who, like Kyrie Irving, aren't vaccinated, it's because no one wants to feel like they're forced into making a decision when it comes to them and their bodies. 
We'll be back here tomorrow on a Friday. After a Sabres win? A dreary Friday. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, I guess. Anyone can win. I mean, there's 82 That's games. Right. You know, I mean, who knows? Right, Sabres win and football Friday tomorrow. That's what It'll we're looking nice for. It would be nice if they're an entertaining team. That's what I got to say. I want entertaining. A couple of scraps. Yeah. Get a four check going. I'm not setting my hopes that high. That's what I'm in. That's what I'm into. Let's get let's get a nice four check. Can that be my goal for the season? I, I like that goal. I, I don't care if we don't win a single game. If I, we have a nice four check and I can watch the game and enjoy it. That would be nice. Well, let's see what we see tonight. We'll be back here tomorrow on WBEN. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.